0: Reading your Bible, praying, finding time to be alone with God does not make you more acceptable to God, nor do those practices change you. Rather, it is where change happens, as we come to meet with our Father and connect with His heart. Our teacher on this important subject is author and speaker Preston Gillum of Fort Worth, Texas, when he spoke at the Crisis Life Conference hosted by Crossways to Life. May Father use this message to deepen your walk with Him. Several years ago I was under a great deal of, of stress and my job I don't remember what all the circumstances were today and it's not necessarily important but all I remember was that it was a tough time and I had been up at night uh, walking late in my neighborhood and so on thinking about the issues that were uh, spinning around in my head. It was a cold day, and uh, I stepped out the back door of my office to walk across the parking lot to the gas station and buy myself a cup of coffee. And as I walked across the parking lot, I began to uh, speak to God and I uh, said to him, "You know, Father, I have a file folder in the office that is three-quarters of an inch thick, and it is filled with all of the characteristics of who you are. Some of those characteristics are things that I've hunted down in my own studies. Some of those characteristics are things that other people have come up with, people a whole lot smarter than I am. And I've collected them over the years and now there's that big file folder and, and Father, it's full of all sorts of important names about you, omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent and immutable and, and all sorts of, of big words that are important words and, and important concepts. And you know, Father, I appreciate all of that, but somehow or another, it isn't enough. Somehow or another, it just isn't enough. I don't understand. And I know in my head that it's not right, but in my gut, it just feels like life is bigger than you are. So somehow or another, I have missed something. If you wouldn't mind, would you please tell me yourself who you are? I know who I have determined you are and I know who other people have determined that you are but would you please just introduce yourself to me And you know what <clears throat> thoughts begin to come into my head that I believe were from God happened right over by the dumpster Verses of Scripture began to come into my mind. For example, I thought of the verse that says that God saves every tear that I cry and puts it in a bottle. And he said, I'm sentimental. And I thought of the verse that says that God leads us in his triumph. He said, I like parades. And on this began to go while I walked over to the gas station. And it was a, a personal introduction of who God is right straight out of his book in terms that I could get. And what began to happen was that whereas I stepped out the back door with a view of God that was this big and a life that was this much bigger, as I began to listen to what God was saying to me in my thought life, all of a sudden, God began to become expansive. In every direction that I looked, I saw his hand. And I heard him begin to say to me, Press, I am big enough for whatever is going on in your life. Take off. Run. Just take off in any direction and run. I am there if you will just pay attention. And so what I'd like to do is, during this session, I would like to walk you through some of the passages of Scripture that God has used in my life to introduce himself to me and some of the illustrations that go along with it that have made him a personal God to me. The verse of Scripture that I just referenced, Psalm 56.8, it says, you have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not recorded in your book? Like I said, he saves my tears. People who save stuff are sentimental. God is sentimental. Furthermore, he writes things in a book. He writes stuff down. I write stuff down. I understand that. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He watches the birds. He likes nature. Matthew six twenty six. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they are? I had a bird feeder, uh, paid a lot of money for it, had a nice roof on it and everything, a little place where the birds could perch and you, fit, you know, went out and lifted the roof and poured seed in there and everything and it was a great deal and then we had this hailstorm that came through Fort Worth and just beat the stuffings out of my bird feeder, broke it all to pieces and when everything was said and done, all that was left was just the, the platform. Well, being cheap, I decided that I would make do with just the platform and so every morning, I would go out and take an orange juice can full of bird seed and I would pour it on the on the little platform that was left of my bird feeder and then I would go back in the house and get breakfast and all that and so anyway, one morning <clears throat> it was cold and and uh, went out, poured the seed on the top of the bird feeder, and went back in, started getting breakfast ready, and I'm looking out the window at uh, the bird feeder. And by this time, the birds are pretty well trained, you know, and the sparrows would show up first. And as soon, I mean, before I'd ever even gotten in the door, the sparrows were on the bird feeder. And I began to watch them, and when they would peck at the seed, just as they would peck, they'd twist their head. And the seed would just just scatter like this. And I'm sitting there, you know, talking to the birds. And I'm saying, you know, what's with you guys? I mean, if you'll just, you know, aim and peck, you know, you won't make such a mess. And, and, so, and so while I'm busy trying to think through, well, how could I coach these sparrows to where they wouldn't make a mess and so on? Well, then these blackbirds of some sort showed up and uh, scared the sparrows away. And so the blackbirds sat on the bird feeder and they ate for a little while, and in a very, you know, dignified and uh, and thoughtful manner. And then after they'd been there for a little while, then the blue jays showed up, and they're a little bit higher up the pecking order, if you will. And then they scare off the blackbirds. And then after a little bit, a squirrel shows up, and he scares off the blue jays. And so there's this real hierarchy. And while this whole hierarchy is unfolding and so on, you know, when the blue jays show up, the blackbirds go over and they sit on the fence. And then when the squirrel shows up, the blue jays go over and they sit on the other side of the fence and the blackbirds scream and the blue jays are screaming and so on and the squirrels just live in large, you know, eating the seeds on the, and guess where the sparrows are? Right. They're on the ground. They're on the ground eating the seed that they had scattered when they first showed up and father said i invented them that way to take care of them i'll take care of you press oh okay luke 12:27 <clears throat> consider the lilies how they grow they neither toil nor spin but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. He likes flowers. He likes flowers in simple places. Luke twelve twenty eight. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? He notices fields, apparently. You know, there is a section of highway that runs from Clayton, New Mexico to Raton, New Mexico. And it's the doggone looking stretch of, uh, of land that you've ever seen because there are no trees to speak of. It's all grassland and it's volcanic the coolest deal. It's, it's surreal. And so there are these mountains out there and they're they're kind of flat-topped like a stereotypical volcano would be. And then there's just all this grassland and because the mountains are close, they've got all these clouds. You know, the mountains are big enough they're generating their own weather and so you got these weather patterns and you can kind of see forever out there. And... There are just as you drive through this this area, there are just hundreds of antelope out there. And I thought of this verse as I was driving through there just a couple three weeks ago, looking at the antelope and enjoying that field of uh, you know with those volcanoes in it. And so it's about eighty miles long, and I'm driving along looking at that and thinking about it, and this verse of scripture comes to my mind, and I realize you know Father likes these things. identify. He's personal. Jeremiah chapter 32 verses 43 and 44. Fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money. They'll sign and seal deeds and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortune, declares the Lord. He is an astute business speculator. This land was not worth having because it was owned by the enemy. There wasn't any way that Israel had any concept of how to get rid of the Chaldeans. But God said, I will head up the repurchasing, the investment, the astute investment in what anybody else would look at and call speculation. So he's a business mind. He's a business mind. I can sit at my desk and say, Father, there are business issues before me today. I see in your word that you're a businessman. You understand business. You understand speculation. You understand purchasing. You understand purchasing at a gamble. Would you please counsel me on the things that are before me? Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 8. Listen, my beloved. Behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. He enjoys the mountains. He enjoys climbing in the mountains. I love to do that. I go to the mountains every chance I get. I drive to Colorado and I hang out in the mountains. In the wintertime, I go there and I cross-country ski and I snowshoe into the mountains and I listen to the quiet. I enjoy it there. Father does too. And while we're at it in the Song of Solomon, he thinks about sex and love and courtship. He wrote a whole book about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. A triumph was a parade that a Roman uh, general typically would throw for himself when he was returning from having won great battles and conquered lands. And there was a whole procession as to how this parade would unfold. And so when the scripture says that God leads us in triumph in Christ, the picture is of a, is of a victory parade. And of course that's one of those verses that came to my mind when I was walking across the parking lot to go get a cup of coffee. Is He always leads us in his triumph, which says, I like a parade. I like a parade. My wife and I will go downtown to Fort Worth and we will watch the Christmas parade here in a couple of months because we like parades and God likes parades. John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 tells uh, the story of the wedding in Cana. And if you'll remember, it's where uh, Jesus performed his first miracle, his first public miracle. The uh, wedding host had run out of wine, and uh, Jesus' mother was in attendance at this at this uh, uh, reception. And she came to him and told him, you know what, uh, there's a problem, son. The host has run out of wine. And, you know, there's that exchange between Jesus and his mother where he says, you know, hey, what have I got to do with this deal? And so on. And then there's the astute response by Mary who looks to the servants as she's walking away and says, do whatever he tells you to do. And so he looks to those guys and he says, go fill up those pots with water. And you remember the story that when the host comes to get this uh, wine and serves it, the guests say to the host, Wow, this is an incredible deal. You have saved the very best wine until the last. Ordinarily, a protocol is that you serve the best wine first and the cheap stuff last. But you've done it exactly the opposite. What I get from that is that he enjoys eating He enjoys that wine. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me, I told you last night about this group that my atheist neighbor's gotten me into, this wine group. Um, I don't know if any of them are believers. I know five of them are declared atheists or agnostics. But you know what? They always serve the best wine last. And I have pointed that out to them, that you have something in common with Jesus. They don't quite know what to do with that observation. The scriptures talk about Jesus eating fish and drinking wine and saving the best wine for the last. Job 39.5. God is asking Job, who sent out the wild donkey and who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? He taught the wild donkey to pray. He made the, the donkey a great tool he takes note of such things you know i don't know if it's true up here i think it probably is but you know what they're doing back home these days is they are putting donkeys into the fields with uh, sheep and goats and cattle and uh and especially then in bull pastures you know why Because donkeys apparently have something inbred in them that, number one, they tend to patrol the perimeter of a field. So they're great guard animals. And anything that comes through that perimeter that they don't believe belongs there, they'll go over and deal with it. It doesn't matter if it's a coyote or a pack of wild dogs or whatever, they'll go over and take care of it. And you know why they put them in the bull pasture? Because you got a couple of animals here that are 2,000 pounds or better. They're worth a fortune and they're prone to fight. And if they start fighting and one of those bulls breaks a leg or whatever, I mean, your investment in that animal is gone. But you know what? A little old donkey that weighs about seven or 800 pounds will not put up with a disagreement. He'll go over and break up the fight between two battling bulls. And so the ranchers have learned that if they put that donkey in there, it is great protection for their herds from predators, and it also protects their investment, especially in in breeding stock. And God takes note of the donkey in Job chapter 39. He thinks about such things, apparently. John 14 25 through 27. It's the story of Jesus walking on the water. And in the fourth watch, that's between 3 and 6 a.m., and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to the disciples walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. It's just a joke. I'm just messing with you years ago. I worked at a uh, at a Christian athletic camp up in Missouri, and um, one of the things I mean what they hired me to do was take kids down down the river uh, in a canoe and so we'd take these kids down the river and I don't remember they were three three nights, four days, something like that, and we'd camp camp out on the river. Uh, river bars and that sort of thing, you know. And, um, so anyway, one night, one day, one trip, we had, um, I don't know, I've forgotten how many would go with us, maybe 30 or 40, about 10 year olds, 11 year olds, something like that. And, uh, <clears throat> so anyway, we'd stopped for the night, we'd set up camp, it, the water was high, and so we were actually set up on a, on a, in a field as opposed to a, a gravel bar. So we have set up camp, and all the tents are up and everything, and everybody's kind of gotten wet. It's been raining, so we got stuff hanging out to dry and, and everything. But we've got a great fire, and so we're all sitting around the fire. We've eaten. Our bellies are full, and we're telling ghost stories around the fire. And so uh, we began to tell one of the classic stories that uh, has been passed down for years at Canica uh, Camp, and it's the story of the slough lady. And, of course, the slough lady is fictitional, and there's many variations on the slew lady and everything. But tonight... We talked about the slew lady and she would come up out of the river and uh, be covered with moss and grass and everything because she lived at the bottom of the river and, you know, you could kind of get this. And, you know, she had an axe that she came with because she would hunt with that axe. And, you know, and the old kids. Well, meanwhile, we have sent one of the counselors over and he has gotten into the river and he has pulled a river grass up off the bottom of the river and he's covered himself then with river grass and has a camp axe and so he begins to then uh, come stumbling and emerging out of the river covered in grass with this axe in his hand and I'm telling you what man, these ten-year-old guys saw the slew lady coming and they split. I mean they headed in all directions. I never did think we were going to find all those kids. (laughs) They were everywhere. And uh it was, you know, it was it was a wonderful practical joke. Jesus came walking on the water between three and six AM, scared all those guys, and said, Hey, don't be afraid. It's just me. He's a personal God. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. As I said, he keeps lists and journals. I keep lists. I write in a journal. Last time I looked, I had about a half a million words in my journals. He sits down and he writes. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. He describes himself as a lion. He thinks of temperament. Have you ever done any of those temperament things where, I mean, they've. uh, I guess it was Smalley and Trent maybe that uh, wrote a book and described the various temperaments and there's otters and golden retrievers and... Buzzards and whatever else they are, you know, and I think there's a lion in there, maybe. But in any rate, there are all these descriptions that we use of each other and we try to give ourselves some sort of identifier like an animal in order to help us grasp this idea of temperament. Well, apparently God identifies Himself and His temperament. I'm like the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? He defends my rights. He looks out for the oppressed. He cares about the things that are concerning to me. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Thought about that verse some. Why would God say vengeance is mine? I think one perspective on it would be that he says vengeance is his because he knows that we lack the power and the wherewithal to actually do revenge well. And so he says, let me take care of this. I've got the wherewithal to do revenge right. You know, some years ago, I was uh, running an organization. We had a very robust website with all of the um, uh, secure channels and that sort of thing that are necessary to create secure online financial transactions and um so as these transactions credit card transactions uh come into our uh, come into this online store they would run through uh gateways electronic gates if you will that are run by various banks and so on and so uh, anyway we had you know a very sophisticated means of doing online commerce and, and so on to make this a very secure system and everything And um, anyway, we noticed one day that we had received a uh, $10,000 contribution via the um, online donation systems. And then the next day, we got two more $10,000 donations. Well, it's not unusual to get one ten thousand dollar donation, or maybe even two, but to get three in the course of two days, something was up, and so we began to look, and we realized that we were uh, the victims of fraud—credit card fraud. And what was happening was somebody, probably over in the Far East somewhere, was running uh, algorithms, uh, computer—or excuse me, credit card algorithms—and they were bumping our electronic gate. Uh, with all these thousands and thousands and thousands of transactions. And when they would get a credit card number that was a legitimate number, then that would actually go through the gate and they would make a donation. Now, they were fools, whoever they were, to make a $10,000 donation. They should have made a $10 donation. And that would have verified the number, the credit card number. And then they take that number once they're satisfied that it's a good number and they sell it on the black market then. And thus occurs credit card fraud. But they were testing, trying to find uh, valid credit card numbers by bumping our electronic gateway with thousands and thousands and thousands of transactions and it just so happened that three of them went through and we we noticed them because of the the amount that they had actually charged on these cards, so we went uh, to a bank to our bank that was uh, um, you know running the the secure gateway, and I won't tell you the name of it, but Wells Fargo Bank, um, um, we notified them that, you know, hey, we've got this $30,000 worth of fraudulent uh, transactions and so on that is tipping us off that something's wrong here, so there's a problem. Well, to make a long story short, um, Wells Fargo went ahead and processed the transaction, which made them uh, um, fraudulent in the process, and then they turned around and charged us for all of these many thousands of uh, attempted transactions against our electronic gateway. Well, because of the volume that was there, the bill that we received from Wells Fargo was six figures. And um, So, and which, you know... We don't have six figures lying around. And so we began the process of trying to be reasonable with this bank and try to say, hey, look, we, we discovered this. We came to you. Uh, give us a break. You know, Help us out. There was no help to be had, man. And I was turning over every stone I could find, trying to find every muckety-muck and lord high mocus that I could find with any sort of a title after his name carrying a bank card. And I was getting nowhere. And it was looking bad. And so I, uh, you know, went to my board of directors and I said, hey team, Here's the situation, this is what's happening, and so on. And so, you know, all of us began to work and and so on, and so eventually I found a guy, a vice president, out in the, out uh, near the Dallas-Fort Worth airport in a branch bank, and he came to his senses and realized that, hey, this isn't, you know, good for us, and we need to back out of this as quickly as we can, because by then I was, you know, threatening him pretty hard. And so eventually they began to back off and we sort of broke even eventually, uh, in the deal. But it was just, I mean, untold hours of hassle and threat and everything else. And we were just completely the victim of this, uh, of this big bank. Well, one of my board members, had a $20 million line of credit with Wells Fargo Bank, which he used pretty regularly. He visited with uh, the man that was uh, his representative with Wells Fargo. He told him about what was going on with this small ministry that he was on the board of and told him that he needed some help. The man didn't uh, give him any help. And so a $20 million line of credit went away. One of my other board members had $5 million worth of 401k money invested in a Wells Fargo account. And just so happened that that account uh, matured during all of this. And he took that $5 million and invested it with another bank. In other words, because of the hard-headedness that this bank exhibited, It cost them $25 million. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I never could have come up with that. But he did. He's a personal God. He thinks about such things as electronic gateways, apparently. Psalm chapter 4, verse 3, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. You know what? When my wife calls, I always take her call. Unless it's at kind of a standard time. She's a school teacher. If I see the phone ring at 3.30 in the afternoon, I know she's just calling to check in. But if she calls at 10 a.m., I don't care what's going on. I say, Excuse me. And I push that button. I say, Hey, sweetheart, what's up? I know that if she dials me twice in a row, whatever I'm doing, I pick up that phone. I'm anxious to hear. And according to Psalms, the Lord hears when I call, He always takes my call. He's personal. Matthew chapter 19, verse 14. But Jesus said, Let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He likes little kids. (laughs) Several years ago, uh, it was my birthday. And I looked at my calendar and I didn't have anything on my calendar. I didn't have a lunch appointment or anything. And I was just sitting around feeling sorry for myself. And uh, so I called my wife. And I said, "Hey, babe, um, what are the chances of me coming out, picking up some burgers at Whataburger, and bringing them out? Could could we have lunch, you know, for my birthday?" And she says, "Oh, well, by all means, and if you'll stay a little while, we'll celebrate your birthday kindergarten style." She's a kindergarten teacher. Well, I didn't know what that meant. And so I said, okay, I'll be there. So I went by the Whataburger. I got uh, two number ones, and I carried him over to the school, and she and I ate and so on. And then I went back to the room after the lunch hour to celebrate my birthday like only kindergartners know how to celebrate it. Here are the rules for how you celebrate a birthday in kindergarten. The first rule is you can never have a hand that is not held So both of my hands were always held. I got a sticker, a birthday sticker, on my shirt so that wherever I went in the school, everybody knew it was my birthday. I got to reach my hand into the pencil box and get my very own pencil and take it home. I got to go to recess and play kickball. Then I got to come in after recess and I sat down and I heard a book read to me by every single one of those 18 kindergartners. I have celebrated my birthday every year since with the kindergartners at Coder Elementary School because I love being around those little kids on my birthday. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me. I like little kids. He's a personal God psalm eighteen nineteen he brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He likes broad places. He must be a Texan <laughs> yeah on the road from Dumas, Texas down to Amarillo, just before you drop off the uh, uh, the escarpment that is formed by the Canadian River—you look out and you can see about forty miles. God likes broad places. Second Samuel chapter six, verse fourteen, Psalm thirty eleven, and one hundred and forty nine three talk about how much God loves to dance. Psalm forty two eight. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime. There's that word of covenant that we talked about last night. And His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. Several years ago, I ran into a pneumonia bug, and I got it. Got it bad. And, uh, boy, I tell you what, it was tough stuff. I've ne- you know, I nearly, I was one day away from going to the hospital, the doctor said. And I would go into these terrible coughing fits. I broke eight ribs coughing. Uh, it was violent thing. And about every ten minutes, I'd have one of those coughing fits, and there was no relief to be had, and there was no sleep to be had. And so, in order to, you know, let Diane sleep, I left her in the bedroom. I went to the front of the house, and I slept up on the couch or laid on the couch as best I could. And in the wee hours of the night. 2, 3 in the morning, I would get up and I would leave the house and I would walk in the streets in my neighborhood. And you know what I discovered at 2 a.m. in the morning? The mockingbirds are singing. I didn't know that. And I wouldn't have known it had I not gotten pneumonia. The mockingbirds are singing at 2 in the morning. And God says he sings in the night. Luke chapter 7, verse 36, all the way through the end of the chapter, talks about Jesus going to the home of Simon the Pharisee. He enjoys a fancy dinner, apparently. Every now and then, Diane and I get all dressed up. and I put on my tuxedo and she puts on her fancy dress, just for the heck of it. And we just go someplace and eat, just to have a fancy dinner. John 21, verse 9. This is um, Jesus interacting with his disciples and it says, So when they, the disciples, got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus must like to cook over an open fire. He likes to grill. Some years ago... Some buddies and I went car camping. We'd never been car camping before. We'd always carried stuff on our backs and and so on, but we went car camping, and since it was car camping, that means that we didn't have to worry about carrying it, and so we loaded everything you can imagine in the back of the car. I mean, oh, poor old car, you know, looked like this as we drove up into the mountains and so on. I mean, we had everything but the kitchen sink in there. And uh, so anyway, we had a great evening. So on, go to bed, get up the next morning. Like I said, it's up in the mountains, up in New Mexico. It's cold, so we get this fire built, and so on. And Joe starts rustling around to get the coffee. And we've actually taken the plastic uh, cone thing out of the coffee machine at the house to make coffee in. But in you know, in spite of having the plastic you know cone thing out of the coffee machine, we didn't have any filters. To make coffee. So we all stood around, you know, cold, wishing for our cup of Java and so on, thinking, what are we going to do? Well, we decided that we would use a t-shirt. And so we took this t-shirt and, uh, there were five of us. So four of us, uh, held the, the uh, t-shirt over the plastic coffee thing dumped coffee grounds on the t-shirt, and then the fifth guy slowly poured hot water over the coffee grounds, and we drank really bad coffee. (laughs) But then we danced around the fire, literally, because we had conquered this problem together. Five guys dancing around the fire because we enjoy camping out, we enjoy the fire, we enjoy the smoke, And when Jesus wanted to be close to his disciples, he found them fishing. He built a fire. I love the language. He laid a fire. That's a technical term. He laid a fire and got ready to cook those fish over that open fire. He's a personal God. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He pledges often with personal pledges. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth... Will be blessed. He makes a personal pledge, and he keeps his word. One of the great memories of my life is going to visit my granddad, who lived in Poto, Oklahoma. Uh, Poto's over on the Arkansas-Oklahoma border, in the in the Washita uh, Mountains. And my granddad was a man who had been the uh, chief of uh, the fire department. He was a justice of the peace. He'd been the postmaster in that little town and uh, in these days he was the uh, justice of the peace. And So the first thing we would do is we would get in his old green Chevrolet pickup truck and he would push in the clutch and let the old truck drift down the hill and then he'd kick start it as we drifted down the hill and down the hill we'd go and we'd make our way down to the courthouse and I'd walk in, and Judge Hoyle then would set up and hit hold court for whoever had been thrown in the clinker overnight. And um, I would stand between uh, two deputies, and then there'd be a deputy standing behind my granddad, and another deputy or two would go, and they'd bring down whoever had been thrown in in the night before. And they'd bring them up, and they'd stand them before Judge Hoyle and hit hold court. And every now and then, there was one of those guys They would miss the point, and he'd act a little cocky. And all of a sudden, my granddad Hoyle would stand up, and he'd come across that table, and he'd get right in their face. And boy, I'll tell you what, I've seen those ice blue eyes looking at me before. And those ice blue eyes would get focused on that guy, and he'd tell them exactly what was getting ready to happen. And they'd say, yes, sir, judge. And then we'd leave from there, and we'd go downtown, and we'd make the rounds. We'd go by Mr. Holton's store, and we'd go by Mr. Logan's insurance agency, and so on he would go. And everywhere we went, we'd walk in, my granddad would shake hands with somebody, and they'd talk about something, and granddad would say, I'll take care of it. And then we'd spend the rest of our day doing that. And I watched my granddad do business, and I heard him say, I will. And then I saw him do that. And our God says, I will, I will, I will. He's a man of his word. He's a personal God. Psalm 103, verse 7. God made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. God wants to make His ways known, not just what He does. You know what? If somebody were to say to you three or four or five days from now, "Hey, do you know Preston Gillum?" You'd say, "Oh yeah, yeah, I know Preston Gillum. He came and he spoke. You know, at uh, at this conference that we had three or four or five days ago. Yeah, I know him. Uh, he's married to Diane, um, lives in Fort Worth, Texas." Uh, used to have a dog, uh, you know, talked to us about various and sundry things, likes to camp out, loves the mountains, and so on. Yeah, I know him. You know about me. But if you were to go to a five foot two brunette girl in Fort Worth, Texas, named Diane, and say, Hey, do you know Preston Gillum? She'd say, Oh, yeah, I know Preston Gillum. I know what he thinks about. I know what his dreams are. I know his aspirations. I know what his rhythms are. I know what time in the morning he leaves the kitchen with his cup of coffee to go to his study. I know what he thinks about when he sits down on the patio at night. I know what he's been pondering when he rides his bike on the trail. Yeah, I know him. I know his ways. God made his ways known to Moses. Israel just understood what God did. God wants to be known. He wants his ways to be known, if we'll simply ask. If we'll simply ask him, Father, tell me about yourself. What makes you tick? What are you thinking about? What is your dream? What are you feeling tonight? Tell me. What's going on with you? He wants to be known. If you ask, he'll answer. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, he will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That verse of Scripture says that God thinks about what he does with our sins. It says that he picks out particular places that are special to him. He has places that he has designated where he buries stuff. He has particular places that are sanctuaries to him. Places that to even him, apparently, are holy ground. A couple of falls ago, no was last fall, now that I think about it, uh, again, a very dark time in my life, really, really struggling. And as is my custom, I headed out, uh, to go to the mountains. So I left Fort Worth, and I drove up to Colorado, and, uh, I drove up into what's called the Collegiate Peaks, and I, I drove up to a little town called Leadville. It's the highest, highest town in, uh, in the United States. It's right up against Mount Elbert and so I stopped in Leadville and I picked up a few supplies and then I headed my truck up a, a dirt road until I went as far as I could go up on Mount Elbert. The snow was already falling up on Mount Elbert. I set up my tent and um, stayed the night up there. It had been, uh, last year, had been a, a hard year in the, uh, in the mountains. It had been relatively dry and so the bears hadn't had a lot to eat. And, uh, they were causing troubles down in town and that sort of thing. Same was true with, uh, the deer population. They were struggling because the deer were struggling, the mountain lions were struggling, and, and so on. And so, uh, knowing all of this was going on, I went prepared for that. But more than anything, I went with this tremendous burden inside my soul that I was trying to sort on, that I went to the mountains to try to get, get some clarity with. It was, uh, 22 degrees, I don't know what that works out to in centigrade, but anyway, it was cold, like I said, snow around. So I went and I uh, I climbed into my tent, pulled my sleeping bag up around me, and I had my 357 pistol right here beside my, my head, just in case. I began to talk to Father, tell him about how lonely I felt in the circumstances that I was struggling with and nobody quite understood the issues that I was wrestling with and that I needed some help and I drifted off to sleep um, talking to him about that loneliness and then I woke up in the night and I heard breathing. And so I laid in my bed and I listened and I thought of my 357 pistol lying beside my head and I listened to the breath and I said, it's not a bear. It's not heavy enough. And I listened again and I said, it's not a lion. Because there's more than one breath. And so I decided it was mule deer. And that they'd been sent to keep me company. And the next morning I got up. And there were five five spots in the frost where those mule deer had laid up against my tent in the night to keep me company. He's a personal God. He recognized that that place was a sanctuary to me. And he sent somebody. He sent somebody to be there with me. Job chapter 39 do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? God asks of Job. Just this weekend before I came um, up here, I was at a friend's ranch. We went out in the morning to feed his horses. And uh, he's got three three uh, cow horses that he used, quarter horses. So we fed the horses and we were standing there in the barnyard and the horses were eating and so on and we were talking and after a little bit, the horses had eaten and they came over and they joined our little circle. And one of the horses came up to my left side and put his head over my shoulder. His face was right here against mine. and I could feel his mane in the side of my face. And I reached up and put my arm around around that horse's neck and I put my fingers into his mane. And I thought of this verse. God clothed the horse, clothed his neck with a mane. He's personal. God is close. He goes to great lengths to be approachable. These illustrations that I've been giving to you, yes, there are a lot of stories, but they're for instances. They're ways that uh, of, of me trying to say, look, Ask. I went to Father and I said to him, I apologize. I've done all of this research. I just don't get it. Who are you? Who are you? Would you tell me? If I came to you and I said, Hey, let's go out and grab a cup of coffee. And we sat down and I said to you, Tell me about yourself. Would you be offended? No. You would be honored. You might be embarrassed a little bit, and you'd tell me a little bit, and then you'd look for some reassurance, and I'd say, I understand. Go ahead. Thanks. Tell me more about your dad. Tell me more about that little town where you grew up. What were the winters like when you grew up up there? Tell me about yourself. You wouldn't be offended. You would be honored. Why would your Heavenly Father not feel any different? Why would he be bothered if you went to him and said, tell me about yourself, will you? I know what I've read. I know what I've heard. But tell me, let me see it with my own eyes. Describe yourself to me as you would like for me to understand you. And I'll bet you money he will capitalize on this book that you have read volumes from, from our discussion last night that you have studied a book at a time from our discussion last night, that you have meditated upon a verse at a time, a passage at a time, like we talked about last night, he'll capitalize on that and he'll say, well, I'm sentimental. I like birds. I love nature. I like horses. In fact, I created the mane on a horse because I like putting my fingers in it. I like feeling it on my face. I like open places. I like flowers in all their simplicity. God is personal. He's written a book. He wants us to read it. Get to know his ways. Ask him to tell you about himself. Understand what is on his mind and in his heart. Put yourself in a place to discuss with him. And to listen to Him. And that very act of listening and discussing with Him, communicating with Him, that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow night. Personal prayer. Personal prayer. Discussion with God. Father, thank You for being personal. Thank You for going to such great lengths. To be approachable, to be available, to make yourself conceivable to us. I appreciate the distance that you have come to do that rather than asking us to make the trip. Father, would you tell us about yourself? Would you describe us in the terms that you wish for us to understand? Would you break down the barriers that have been created that would make you unapproachable and unavailable to us, inaccessible? And would you express yourself to us in terms that we can get such that we can understand that in our personal story, in the personal place where we live, that you are our personal God, that you have gone to great lengths to be real to us. And Father, would you prepare our hearts to understand what it means to carry on a conversation with you, this thing that we call in religious circles prayer, but in which, re- in which reality is nothing more than a discussion. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. This message was recorded at the Christ's Life Conference hosted by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know God deeper and disciple Christians on their journey to life and freedom that they may love others from their new pure heart by faith in Jesus Christ, living through them as a result of their union with Christ at the cross. For more information, upcoming events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.